1: Now more than ever, businesses are grappling with incredibly challenging times, a lot of things in life and business are changing, and we're all adapting to new priorities. While it does take time to adjust, LinkedIn believes that it's also possible to find and create opportunities in times of turbulence, in times of change. Whether you're looking to hire now for a critical role or thinking about needs that you might have in the future, LinkedIn Jobs can help. LinkedIn is an active community with more than 675 million members worldwide, LinkedIn screens candidates for the hard and soft skills you're looking for while putting your job in front of candidates looking for job opportunities that match exactly what you have to offer. With LinkedIn, you can hire the right person quickly when you need them. And if you need to hire for healthcare or essential services, you can post your jobs for free right now. When it's time to find and hire that right person, LinkedIn is here to help. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to post a job now. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Five Bullet Friday guests for the podcast, some of the most amazing people I've ever interacted with. And little known fact, I've met probably 25% of them because they first subscribed to Five of Friday. So you'll be in good company. So, easy peasy. Again, that's tim.blog forward slash Friday. And thanks for checking it out, if the spirit moves you. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to interview people who are world-class performers in their respective fields. And today, my guest is Howard Marks at Howard Marks book on Twitter. Howard is co-chairman and co-founder of Oaktree Capital Management, a leading investment firm with more than $125 billion in assets under management. He is the author of the books Mastering the Market Cycle, subtitled Getting the Odds on Your Side. And the most important thing, subtitle Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor, both critically acclaimed bestsellers. Warren Buffett has written of Howard Marks, quote, when I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something. So he has some very bright minds who pay attention to his writing and Howard has been on the podcast before. This is round two, and we dig into all sorts of subjects, including the US dollar as reserve currency, investing, how to add defense to investment strategy, three different ways to do that, and much, much more. So, without further ado, please enjoy a wide ranging conversation with Howard Marks. Howard, welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's nice to hear your voice again. And, uh, of all the people I could speak to on the show during these most exciting times and difficult times for many people, you were very much at the top of the list. And there are a lot of different topics and a lot of different questions that I'd like to cover. But I thought we could start, I have a number of your memos in front of me. And there's one called You Bet. This is from January thirteenth, two 2020. And I, I thought we could start with the story of arriving at first national Citibank in May of 68 and how that contrasted with what you then did in 1978. Would you mind telling that story for people listening?
0: No, if you have some time. I do,
1: I have all the time in the world.
0: It'll take a while. Um, Well, as you say, uh, I arrived at Citibank for a summer job in the investment research department in May of 1968 between years of graduate school at the University of Chicago and I was assigned to the Investment Research Department. Um, The bank and most of the money center banks at the time in their money management departments were adherents of what was called Nifty 50 investing. and They invested in what they considered to be the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America. Extremely high quality companies where nothing could go wrong. And, uh, you know, the, the, the the idea of growth stock investing, investing in companies because their earnings grew rapidly had been born in the early 1960s, and uh, these uh, companies epitomized that activity: um, IBM, Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid, Merck, Lilly, Hewlett-Packard, Perkin-Elmer, Texas Instruments, uh, Avon, Coca-Cola, uh, AIG, etc. And um, you know the the basic idea was you hitch yourself to a company with a bright future. And rapidly growing earnings. And, uh, if you, if you, uh, did so the day I got there in 1968, and if you held those stocks firmly for the next five years, you lost almost all your money in the best, com- in the best companies in America. Because one thing had been overlooked in the process, which was price. And nobody talked about the fairness or attractiveness of the price. The belief was that these are companies which were so good that it didn't matter what you paid and if you paid a price that was a bit high, the earnings would grow so fast that kind of the stock would grow into the price. And um, so, of course, this was painful education. These stock's Generally speaking, fell from price-earnings ratios of perhaps 80, which even today would be practically unheard of, to eight, when the wheels came off the market in the early 1970s. Now, some of it, some of it was the collapse of the market. Some of it was the collapse of uh, these this particular uh, field of investing, and some was the function of the uh, flowering of uh, rapid inflation, which was perplexing uh, the country at that time, but but for whatever reason, uh, here you are. You're you're investing in the best companies in America, and you lose 80 or 90 percent of your money. Now, fast forward as you suggest, Tim, to 1978, in part because my uh, uh, meanderings with equities had worked out so badly as part of the um, uh, machinery that that ran this Nifty Fifty effort, I uh, left the investment research department. I always say I'm lucky I didn't get fired. And uh, my boss asked me to join the bond department, which was at that time a backwater uh, of investing, and uh, start a fund that would invest in convertible bonds, which was something that very few people had ever heard of. And I started to do that, and I loved it. So I went from being head of a department of 75 people with a $5 million budget and membership on all the bank's senior investment committees to working alone with no colleagues, no budget, no committees, and I was ecstatic because rather than know two sentences on 400 companies, I could know everything about a few. So I, I loved money management, and I loved the fact that I was operating in in and uncrowded area. And then in August of 1978, I got the call to change my life. The head of the bond department called up and he said, you know, there's a guy named Milken or something out in California and he deals with something called high-yield bonds. Do you think you could figure out what that is? Because a client had asked for a high-yield bond portfolio. So uh, I I researched high-yield bonds. I met with Mike Milken. Um, I started Citibank's high-yield bond fund Late in 1978, uh, I believe that was the first high-yield bond fund from a mainstream financial institution, and that was the very beginning of the high-yield bond world. And One of the great lessons, of course, as Malcolm Gladwell uh, makes clear in his book, uh, Outliers, is that it's great to be first in line, and the timing accident of my being assigned to the bond department in 1978 put me at the beginning of the line in high-yield bonds. And high-yield bonds are the bonds of companies which are not rated investment grade. They're considered speculative grade by the rating agencies. At the time, they were verboten by the vast majority of investors. And so I went from investing in what everybody loved to what everybody hated from the best companies in America to the worst public companies in America and now I'm making money safely and steadily in the worst companies in America because they were so cheap, because the interest rates they had to pay in order to secure financing as, as uh, a, a, a disrespected group was excessive under the circumstances. So this was quite an epiphany um, and it has uh, really directed my whole career.
1: And you've, you've written in uh, this particular memo, success in gambling doesn't go to those who pick winners, but to those with the ability to identify superior propositions. The goal is to find situations where the odds are generous to one side or the other, whether favorite or underdog, in other words, a mispricing. And you explore this in the context of different types of games. Some games of chance, some games that have different profiles, and you can categorize them. You have, let's just say, no hidden information, no luck, and skill, chess. No hidden information, luck and skill, backgammon. No hidden information, luck, no skill, roulette. Hidden information, luck, skill, blackjack and poker. And uh, you have quite a history with many different types of games and you i think are very good at thinking about the future probabilistically framing good questions if you were to look at our current circumstances as a game and perhaps compare it to 2008 what are the games that we're looking at
0: well it's it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, set of circumstances we find ourselves in because Nobody knows anything about the future. There's, you know, in the fields that I'm involved in, economics and investing primarily, there is no such thing as knowledge of the future because the future does not operate according to a fixed schedule or the laws of nature like physics and so forth. All we have is extrapolation from past patterns which help us in terms of our expectations for the future. The problem we have now is that there is no history for what we're engaged in. First of all, we have, I would say, the worst public health crisis to come to America in over 100 years, or certainly one of the worst. The worst economy since the Great Depression, more than 80 years old, the worst collapse of oil in history, and the greatest rescue and stimulus program from the Fed and the Treasury in history. So we have four things going on which are unprecedented. And as a result, we really can't say what lies ahead in any of them. And it is further complicated by the fact that they'll interact and we can't know how they will interact and what that will produce so uh i i would say that we are uh unusually ignorant with regard to the future t- today and uh, w- you know one of the things i said to one of my colleagues tim is that we all have the same information about the present and we all have the same ignorance about the future and today, I think that ignorance is, is greater than at other times. So we have to um, uh, uh, to use the, the uh, outline you were posing, there's a lot of hidden information. We don't even know how many people really have it. We don't know how many people have died from it, because there are unreported cases of infection, and there are deaths that took place that were not known to be uh, the result of infection. So we have uh we have uh, hidden information and we have uh so much about the future that we don't know. Uh you know, will the will the disease turn down? Will the the effect of warm weather be a positive? When will a a, a uh an immunological test be developed and a vaccine? Um if we reopen business, will uh the uh, cases uh, strike up again, um, and so forth and to what extent. So, uh, we are really dealing with, uh, a lot of ignorance and a lot of uncertainty. And yet we have to take action in positioning our capital for the future when the future is unusually unpredictable.
1: And how do you, how are you currently thinking in bets, to use the title of the Annie Duke book, that I know you are a fan of, or uh, perhaps it's not the the best way to address the, the, the question, really. But given the uncertainties, given the situation, how are you trying to navigate that? Or what questions are you finding most helpful?
0: Sure. Well, I think a lot of it goes back, Tim, to what you said uh, about the memo, you bet, is that it has to do with the quality of the proposition. Um, I wrote a book, we talked about it a year and a half ago, uh, called uh, Mastering the Market Cycle. And I thought that the, t- the subtitle of that book was unusually helpful. The subtitle is Getting the Odds on Your Side. When you're dealing with the future, given the ignorance... Uh, you can never have certainty. There's nothing that's sure to work or sure to fail. You only have probabilities. But sometimes the probabilities are very favorable to the investor, and sometimes they are very unfavorable to the investor. And the whole thing about studying cycles is trying to figure out which is which. So let's, let's talk about propositions. And let's talk about picking winners. So you go to a horse race, and there's one horse that stands out among all the others. Great lineage, looks terrific, great recent record, and this horse is by far the favorite. And everybody concludes that this horse will win the the race. Does that mean that you should bet on this horse? That's really the key question in, in investing. And the answer is, it depends on the odds. Because when one horse is an overwhelming favorite, you may have to bet $5 to win a dollar. He's so sure to win that no, nobody wants to bet against him. And if you want to join the hordes who want to bet on that horse, as I say, you may have to put up 5 bucks to get back 6 there may be a long shot in that race that somebody can figure out, well, maybe that horse is going to have his day, and that horse may be a 10-to-1 shot or a 50-to-1 shot because we're so sure the favorite will win that the that this that this uh, long shot uh, is, is absolutely unpredictable to win. Nobody wants to bet on this horse, so if you will bet on this horse and you put up a dollar, you can get 50 if you're right. So even though the horse is unlikely to win, it may be the better bet. Even though the favorite is overwhelmingly likely to win, it may be a bad bet. So it's not only what you think will happen, but it's also the payoffs. So let's take that through what we were just discussing. 1968, the the uh, nifty-fifty companies were believed to be great companies with a bright future, and let's assume that their future success was assured, you still have to look at the proposition. And the answer is that it costs so much to bet on those companies that betting on what were believed to be good companies turned out to be bad bets. 1978, high-yield bonds. Now we're betting on what are believed to be bad companies, but because they're believed to be bad companies, the payoff is extremely generous. Not a... Not expected to be favorites, but highly remunerative if they pay off. So high yield bond investing was very successful. Um, Now you come into into the present, and and life gets tough. But you know we have to make some judgments about the future, and the judgment you have to you have to say how bad will it get now, how Quickly will we go back to work? What will be the experience when we go back to work? Will there re- be a rebound in cases? How quickly will the economy come back to life? What will GNP do in the second quarter of this year, which is roundly believed to be the worst recession quarter in history? Uh, and how fast will we get back to the 2019 Levels of economic activity and surpass them. When will we have a vaccine? All the you know there there are dozens of questions, um, and no answers. Um, I've been quoting uh, Mark Lipsich, who's a uh, epidemiologist at Harvard, who says that when in studying the virus, there are there are facts, there are inferences based on analogies to other viruses, and there are opinions. And when we started off in this round, there were no facts. The highly skilled epidemiologists could make inferences, and the rest of us were left to just guess. But, you know, there's there's some um, consensus developing, which is that, you know, the, the country will go back to work in the next few months. Clearly, no agreement on the pace that there will be, there will likely to be a rebound in new cases, but not as bad as the first, um, and that gradually the economy will recover, and uh, it'll show uh, much better 2021 than 2020. 2021 may or may not be back to the 2019 levels, but by 2022, we'll be back to or surpass the twenty nineteen levels and with vaccines and treatments um the the coronavirus will be demoted to uh, just another seasonal disease. That's the consensus. And of course the consensus opinion is reflected in the bidding for stocks and in the prices of stocks and other securities. And that's where we are now. Um and uh you know that, so that's i would say i would describe that as a fairly uh positive forward looking case um, and it's incorporated in the prices of stocks and the prices of stocks are surprisingly high some of them or if you look at the uh, the averages which are dominated by you know the great companies like amazon and microsoft those averages like the s&p 500 are surprisingly high r- relative to where they were on February 19th, which was the all-time high, and we're probably down, um, you know, low double digits of percent, 12, 13, 14 uh, percent, depending on the date you air this. Um, and uh, so, you know, the way I've described it, I would say, uh, not a bad outcome, not a bad future, uh, and uh, so... Uh, stocks have recovered very substantially from their lows they're up uh 27% i think from their lows uh because the consensus has settled on this uh, good news uh, now the it, now let's talk for a minute if i can go on about proposition the challenge today is that if the favorable unfolds and 2021 or 22 are uh Healthy economically versus 19. Nobody thinks the stock market has that far to go on the upside. And if the negative case unfolds and everything I've said so promisingly, uh, fails to materialize or materializes less and later than hoped, uh, there are pessimists who think that the market has far to fall. And it's hard to choose between the optimistic and the pessimistic case. So uh, the odds for buying here, the S&P 500, for example, do not seem to me to be tilted heavily in the investor's favor.
1: Now, you have been thinking about uncertainty for a very, very long time. Uh, you, for instance, first read a book in 1963, titled, Decisions Under Uncertainty, subtitled, Drilling Decisions by Oil and Gas Operators by C. Jackson Grayson Jr. And you've you've proven an ability to act on a sort of spectrum of uncertainty over the uh, subsequent decades. And I, I think the way that you phrase questions is part of that, questions to yourself, Questions uh, among your team, and I, d- I just wanted to give an example of that uh, from your most recent memo. This is knowledge of the future, and it's it's a paragraph that's discussing the word "limitless," which was uh, used, I think, in quoting the Fed Chairman or uh, some someone of that type. And here's here's the the wording: "Is the program really limitless, and is that okay?" the stimulus loans bailout's benefits and bond buying that have been announced thus far add up to several trillion dollars what are the implications of the resultant additions to the federal deficit and the fed's balance sheet here's the part that i want to highlight just because i think it's a useful i think it's a useful framework for looking at a lot of these a lot of these elements. Okay, so here we go. To be facetious, the government could send every American a check for $1 million at a cost of $330 trillion. Would there be any negative consequences from doing this, such as burgeoning inflation, a downgrade of U.S. creditworthiness, or the dollar losing its status as the world's reserve currency? If the answer is yes, is there a point below $330 trillion at which those ramifications might kick in? And if so, where? Could we be there already? Uh, I, I'd be very curious to hear how you've attempted to answer or think about any of those things that were mentioned in that paragraph. We could pick one, certainly, if it's helpful, such as the U.S. dollar, the status of the dollar as a reserve currency in uh, in, in these wildly unusual times. But how have you continued to think about those questions or attempt to tackle some of those unknowns?
0: Well, this is the $64 question these days, Tim uh i want to make it clear before i try to do so that i'm not saying the fed is wrong to do what it's doing the fed is throwing everything in the kitchen sink at the problem and the problem has to be has to be solved uh you know back if if i, if I go back to march uh, let's say 18 or 19 i think it was you know i was actively considering the possibility uh with my partner Bruce Karsh, of a global depression comparable to the 1930s, and you recall that we had we had a decade with uh, unemployment in excess of 14% in the U.S. Um, and uh, a total absence of growth and widespread suffering. And uh, you know, we were talking about the possibility of that as this economy uh, contracted, imploded. So the the Fed and the Treasury came along. They threw everything at it. They used all the lessons learned in the global financial crisis of 08-09. Of uh, things that were developed over the course of months at that time were implemented in weeks this time. Uh, and uh, certainly, um, you know, I think it was the uh, New York Times describing uh, uh, Jay Powell' statement as saying that the resources thrown at the problem would be limitless. And I think that's the right thing because the alternative, uh, the, you know, back in the thirties, they were judicious in trying to fight the uh, depression, almost austere. And um, as a result, a decade of suffering, a generation truly scarred. Uh, and, um, you know, Arguably, we only got out of the depression because of the arrival of World War II. We don't want to wait for that as a curative. So I say strongly that the Fed and Treasury were right in doing what they did. But uh, the fact that there may be negative unintended consequence doesn't mean that they weren't right. But, you know, again, we are we're battling problems we've never seen before. With weapons we've never seen before, and we certainly can't say that they don't have negative potential uh, unintended consequences. Um, we just we don't know what they are. We will we would probably bear them nevertheless. But for example, if the government floods prints money, the normal reflex. Reaction is to say that if they print a lot of money, that causes the currency to be devalued. And, uh, that, that, that is a lockstep relationship that has always been considered. Uh, now in the last, you know, we've been running big deficits for a long time and extremely big deficits in recent years. Uh, and yet we don't have serious inflation which is the normal sign of, of a currency being debased If a currency is being debased and people think less of it and if, then if they if you if you want to buy a goat you have to pay more dollars to get the goat or a car or a bar of gold or whatever and or a you know a bunch of bananas and in recent years we haven't had inflation even though we've been running huge deficits vastly increasing the national debt and and so forth. So, you know, economics is not a mechanical process which works according to a schematic in a dependable fashion. And all the printing of money that has taken place in recent years has not brought on inflation. Inflation is supposed to work in response to the unemployment rate the less unemployment there is in the country the higher the inflation is supposed to be because there's less slack in the economy and the uh, workers for example can demand higher wages hasn't happened that was this is something uh, called the phillips curve and it's been touted for 60 years and just doesn't work so we don't know uh but you know that's why I use that extreme, and I, say to, I said in the memo, facetious example, if the government sent everybody a check for a million dollars and it cost $330 trillion, would there be an effect on the value of the dollar, on inflation, etc.? And you have to believe there would, or I have to believe there would, but where does the negative effect cut in short of that, since we're not going to do that? But, you know, the government is probably spending on buying securities and pumping into the economy, you know, close to $10 this year. Is that enough to cause an impact? And the answer is we don't know. But I would just say, you know, it's clear that we all have our biases and we deal with our uncertainty with regard to the future. Implementing our biases, it's very hard to get away from that. And I worry. I'm not a dreamer. I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not the person who says, oh, they'll find a solution. I worry. And so, uh, you know, I worry that there will be some negative, uh, effects that I can't predict or, or describe or quantify. And so that would, uh, among other things, uh, tend to cause me to implement some caution.
1: And, uh, you're right. The, the, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, so his, his, his quote was, when it comes to lending, we're not going to run out of ammunition, which was right. uh, in the Wall Street Journal. That's on March 30th. Uh, what, what form might that caution take? Or perhaps more specifically, if we look at the Fed buying all sorts of things that historically it would would not necessarily be associated with purchasing junk bonds, distressed debt, et cetera. How does, how does that affect your playbook and how you think about crowded versus uncrowded opportunities?
0: Sure. So many things in that question require an answer. Um, First, let me say that I think every investor has to make a choice. They have to balance offense and defense, just like, just like a, uh, a soccer team, that, that a coach fields to play against another team. Uh, you know, you have to have uh, players on the field who in totality can both defend their goal and attack the other side's goal. Um, so your portfolio uh, for the investor has to strike a balance between trying to make money and trying to avoid losing money at the same time, and the way I dope it out, Tim, is to say that every investor faces two risks every day, the risk of losing money, which is obvious, and the risk of missing opportunity, which is a little more subtle. Now, you can eliminate either risk if you are willing to totally surrender to the other risk, so... I can if you want to if you want to eliminate the risk of losing money, you can put all your money into T bills and then you will miss all the opportunities. or if you want to make sure you don't miss any opportunities, you can make sure that all your investments are uh, aggressive and yet there are no T bills or cash, in which case you're exposed heavily to the possibility of losing money. So most people compromise. most people say well. I don't want to lose a lot of money but on the other hand I don't want to miss all the opportunities so I'm going to strike a balance between offense and defense that's what we all have to do if we're not crazy and so the question is how do you strike that balance today and Oak Tree my firm in recent years has been concerned about the market and about the fact that uh, we thought that it was exposed to significant uncertainties and risks, although we didn't enumerate a pandemic, that asset prices were high, that prospective returns were low because interest rates in the environment have been so low for so long, and because a lot of investors were engaging in risky behavior in order to make a good return in a low-return world. So You put all that together, and we thought that made the world a risky, low-return place in which one should emphasize defense over offense, and, and we did. Uh, we, we adopted a mantra, move forward but with caution, and that has guided us. Now, we are cautious investors, so when I say with caution, I mean more than usual, and that's what we've done. Next question, how do you implement defense? And There are basically three ways that an investor can uh, add to defense in his portfolio or her portfolio. The first, the obvious one, is you sell some assets and you go to cash in part or in whole. Now, this is very hard to do because this is black or white, wrong or right, um, and rarely is it right. To be overwhelmingly in cash. And on the rare occasions when it's right, most people can't find those occasions. So, so going to cash is problematic. And by the way, if you go to cash and you're wrong and you, you miss good performance in the market for a couple of years, uh, you know, the individual investor will rue the day and the professional investor might be out of work. So cash is tough. The next thing you can do is you can go into more defensive asset classes. We know what they are. More bonds rather than stocks. Larger companies rather than small. Value rather than growth. Stable rather than cyclical. U.S. rather than foreign. Developed world rather than emerging. Um, and, uh, you know, there are many, many ways to increase the defensiveness of your asset allocation. And then the third form of going defensive doesn't even require you to disturb your asset allocation. It's just that everything you want to do in investing can be done in a more aggressive or more defensive way. So you might say, well, I have 40% of my portfolio in stocks and I want to keep it that way. But you can buy more defensive stocks or you can put your money with a more defensive manager or you can put your money in a mutual fund which has a record of not making so much money in the up years, but protecting money in the down years. So there are three ways to be defensive. Go to cash, take a more defensive asset allocation, or use more defensive tactics. Um, and uh, we've been doing the latter. Our asset allocation is assigned, our clients give us money and they say, here put this in this or put this in that. For the most part, we don't choose our asset allocation but what we've been doing is in in recent years we have been fully invested and so we participated as the market rose but with a portfolio that we think was more defensive than most and so we came into this uh, uh virus episode with a higher quality more defensive portfolio and that stood us quite well uh, in in the uh in the first quarter but Frankly, with the risks on the table and a lot of securities now cheaper than they used to be, and a lot of risky behavior now discouraged, uh, I don't think one has to be as defensive as we were. Uh, so we have shifted the balance in our portfolios, uh, moved more on, on to offense to take advantage.
1: And if if you're looking towards offense, uh, capitalizing on some of your historic strengths, what does the how does the Fed purchasing all sorts of asset classes that it might not normally purchase affect how you look at those opportunities? If uh, sure.
0: mm-hmm. that was part of your original question, which I forgot, but um, well, you know, as as should be clear, you know, we're specialists in non. Gilt edge debt Guilt edge is an old-fashioned term non investment grade debt speculative grade debt and um, you know that means high-yield bonds uh, leveraged loans convertible bonds which I mentioned before um, you know emerging market debt lots of lots of um, let's say less than stellar quality debt and usually in a crisis like this that stuff would be hurt more than most which meant that we could pick it up cheaper than most. Perhaps our one of our flagship strategies is investing in distressed debt, the debt of companies that are either bankrupt in default or highly likely to be in the opinion of the market. And We've been investing in distressed debt uh, since 1988. Uh, my partner, Bruce Karsh, joined me in 87. He's been running these portfolios since then. And uh, in the 32 years, there were five periods uh, when there were very high defaults among high yield bonds, a lot of distress, and when we got to uh, take advantage of very good opportunities. And those were 1990, 91, 2001, 02, and 08. Those were crisis years, and in the crises, the low quality, risky debt tended to melt down, and we tended to get great buying opportunities so your question is well what does it mean that the fed is involving itself in these areas and the answer is it's it, we, we wish they'd go away uh you know, because <laughs> because it you know historically in in negative times uh and this is something we haven't discussed much but maybe we should uh most people get discouraged most people uh shrink to the sidelines and uh you know when 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 these things would cascade down in price we would be able to buy them very cheaply. If the Fed comes in and buys in those markets, then it makes our lives more difficult because things don't fall the way they otherwise would have. We don't get the bargains we otherwise
1: would have. When you look, uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I want to ask if you think the Fed is truly with infinite ammo i mean i don't know if they have the the sort of bandwidth to participate super widely indefinitely in high volume but possibly they do this is way outside of my area of expertise so it's a bit above my pay grade but where would you thinking probabilistically where would you how do you look at the possible outcomes and probabilities that this type of spending continues for a long period of time
0: I think that they the, the the Fed and the Treasury want to soften the impact on America and, and its economy. And I think they're going to continue to spend uh until the economy is can take over for itself. I think one way to think of this, Tim, is that you know, many times if a patient has a serious disease, they'll put the patient into a coma so that they can treat the disease. And While the patient's in the coma, they keep them on life support, and uh, then when the patient is, the disease has been healed, the patient can be brought back and the life support can be removed. So the disease is the virus. In order to fight the virus, we had to close businesses, freeze economic activity, and tell people to stay home. So stores, Movies and hotels and airlines and concerts and sports all stopped cold. And that's putting the economy into a coma. And we have 26 million people who have filed for unemployment insurance in the last uh, five weeks. And uh, we are expecting a decline of GDP uh, in the second quarter here of uh well, most people say 20 to 30%, which would make it the worst quarter in history by a order of magnitude. So they have to keep it on life support until they can bring the economy back. And the life support is all this injection from the Fed and the Treasury. And they're going to continue it until they're highly confident that they're out of the woods. They're not going to take a chance and say, well, if we... Let's let's suspend it now and see if the economy can pick up. They're going to wait until the economy is operating with some strength and uh, growing from this depressed base before they withdraw it. I'm confident of that.
1: What What are the as someone who's I, I I've never taken an economics class, which is not something I brag about. It's quite uh, something a source of embarrassment for me. But what are the markers or metrics that they would? Look to to assess whether the patient can be taken off of life support.
0: Well, uh, unemployment is is usually the best uh, short term indicator. You know, uh, remember that unemployment reached ten percent in the global financial crisis, um, and it was uh, down to five percent. Five five to five and a half is, is has generally been considered something like uh, a structural. Level of unemployment. In other words, there are people, there are some people who can't get a job because they're unqualified. There are people who can't get a job because they can't pass a drug test. There are people who just quit a job. There are people in the process of looking for a job. So, transactional, frictionally, most people assume that five, five-ish percent is is uh, is structural. And the Obama administration, uh, over eight years, did get the unemployment rate, I believe, down to five percent uh, by 2016, and then, uh, uh the Trump administration came in and, uh, continued, uh, very aggressive stimulus, uh, pro-business, uh, environment, reduction of regulation, and the unemployment got down to three and a half. So, it's a barometer of how the economy is doing, and I would think that the, they'll, they'll want, well, it's, you see, it's not gonna be all or nothing. It's not, they're not gonna spend, 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 and then stop. They'll slack off. The term we use in the, in the discipline you never studied, economics, is taper. And they'll taper. Uh, but, you know, I think that they'll support the economy certainly aggressively until the unemployment rate gets into single digits. And perhaps until it gets into mid-single digits. And then of course they'll look at GDP. They'll, you know, uh, GDP has been growing at around 2% and Donald Trump has been trying to say he'll get it to 3 or 4 um, but the GDP will be deceptive because you know it's going to be so horrible in the second quarter of 20 that it's going to be easy to show growth in the second quarter of 21 but we, we have to take that growth with a grain of salt and I think what they'll look for is for the GDP to be getting close back to the track that it was on if this virus hadn't uh, developed.
1: You're, uh, you, you've listed some questions that uh, debt traders on the Oak Tree team, Justin Quaglia, if I'm saying that correctly, Sam Rotondo, right. yep. Yep. that are related to behavioral change uh, more than anything yeah. else. So assuming that quarantine is lifted, when will you take your first flight? How will you react when the person next to you starts coughing? What has to happen to make you feel it's safe to send your child back to school? Uh, one of my favorites is the, when you go to a dinner with your wife, husband, friend, family, do you want to be served by a waiter or waitress wearing mask and gloves? Uh, so, so these are behavioral questions, and uh, you seem to be a connoisseur of questions. And I uh, I want to bring up a quote that also was uh, featured in the You Can't Predict, You Can Prepare memo, which was what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. And these, these might not be totally uh, apples to apples, but w- what types of questions uh, are the wise asking these days? Are, are, are any particular types of thinking or questions uh, present in those people you ad- you admire as good thinkers right now?
0: Well, the, you know, the future, the outlook for the economy has been mostly described as a V, sharp down in the first and second quarter uh, of uh, 2020, maybe some lingering effects in the third, and then sharp up. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about how uh, sharp the the recovery will be. Um, you know, I think... I personally think we're going to come back gradually. I think that people who have a choice are not going to rush back to work. One of the questions that you didn't ask from that memo, Tim, was was mine. Uh, for a New Yorker, when are you going to get back on the subway?
1: Right. That's a great question. You know,
0: and, and, and be in close contact with all those other people. Um, and, uh, you know, taking an airplane flight is is a big deal because, uh, you know, they want you to be six feet away from the next person, and I, the way I calculated it, uh, at best, you could have one person for every nine seats, and they're not going to do that, they're, of course, they'll fill the seats, and they'll have people wearing masks, uh, but, um, you know, uh, I think that people who have a choice are going to wait a while before they get on a, on a full airplane. Uh, another question, of course, is assuming that there is a reopening and assuming that the that the virus hasn't been killed off and we don't have yet a vaccine, um, will uh, people engage in their um, previous activities? I think that people who have a choice will not rush back. Um, and then you, you I read about one state that that passed a rule that restaurants can reopen, but only one out of every four tables can be occupied. But, also, an article yesterday which said that a business which is operating at a low level of its capacity is probably not more profitable than it was when it was closed.
1: Yeah, that's, so definitely, you have true, that's yeah, definitely true. That's definitely true here in Austin. Yeah, a lot of restaurants right. are opting not to open with right. twenty-five percent capacity.
0: Right. Right. So, you know, uh, the the expectation that we're going to come back is probably right but nobody knows the pace uh and these are important questions to ask um but you know one of these days i assume i assume we'll have a vaccine it's not easy to produce 330 million doses and get them into distribution or if we need two like you do for shingles for example there's 660 million doses and um you know, these are massive issues and they don't happen overnight. Um, and then of course, um, you know, we have uh, large numbers of people who don't, you know, only, only half of Americans, I think get flu shots, uh, where, where flu shots are, well, flu kills a lot, you know, kills a lot of Americans. I think flu probably averages 40 to 50,000 deaths a year. And yet only half the people get the shots. Um, will people get the shots? Uh, and, um, You know, there's a, there's an anti-vaccine, uh, cohort in America and, and will they get them and so forth? And and if they don't, what does it imply for everybody else? So I just think that it's, you know, when you, what I say about these unprecedented events, Tim, is that if you haven't seen something happen in the past, you can't say, you know, how it's going to turn out. And we have to, we have to allow windage. Now a warrior like me, Allows for the possibility of bad outcomes. An optimist wants to make sure he contemplates the possibility of good outcomes, surprisingly good outcomes. And so uh, that's why we have differences of opinion. That's a uh, that's why uh, you know the, we have markets in which people can can meet and express their opinions through price.
1: Uh, just just a few more questions, Howard. I, I appreciate all the time today. The, the The question of informational filtering is one I'd like to chat about for a second. What I mean by that is, how do you choose amongst a deluge of possible books, articles, sources of information? Uh, what you read these days for instance or a better question is probably what are some of the higher signal sources of information books people anything that you're paying attention to these days
0: well you know there there are no i don't think there are useful topical books on the subject of this episode yet it's too new we have to you know always review our thinking, how we think about propositions and odds and bets and probabilities and how we think about making decisions under uncertainty and these kinds of things, and you've talked about some of those. Um, You know, I think that we all have to take in a lot of input, primarily through the newspapers, and, of course, we have to be uh, aware of the biases of the newspapers, Uh, When I was a boy, I used to believe that if it was in in the newspaper, it was true. Um, But, you know, newspapers have slants, too. And then, importantly, we have to be very aware of our own slants. Um, And, um, you know, we tend to... We have what's called confirmation bias. And we all tend to read the things we agree with more than the things we disagree with and believe the things that support our biased position more than the things that throw it into question. Uh, and this is uh this is a great challenge. Um, so we, we should try to read it uh, broadly. Uh, we should try to read from the newspaper whose editorial slant we agree with and the one we disagree with. Um, and we should try to appreciate all the input, but I think it's, this is a great challenge, and um, you know if you if you if you read broadly and everybody on the on the internet, every every brokerage and securities house is putting out its own COVID report nowadays. And you see such disparate information. By the way, there are probably I don't know. We've been you've been talking to me about questions today, Tim. There are probably a hundred or two hundred, three hundred questions that bear on the future and nobody can take them all into account so which ones do you think about well number one your selection of the questions to ponder will be shaped by your bias uh because you can't do them all so you know it's, it's it's a terribly challenging thing uh and um i think a lot about bias um and uh, let's go back to what I said earlier, uh, quoting Professor Lipsich of Harvard, facts, analogies, guesses. Um, you know, when I read laymen, investment people, talking about the likely medical course of developments, you know, I, I say, well, wh- where's their expertise? But, you know, everybody has an opinion, and you can't argue you're right, but on the other hand, you can't say, well, I, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to have an opinion. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to decide these things in a uniquely uncertain environment like today's
1: well howard I I, I I really appreciate you carving out time for the conversation uh, i I think that you know, we could cover a thousand additional topics, but I'll just ask one more or maybe two more, and that is what would you hope people would think more about uh, or what aren't people paying enough attention to in your mind is does anything does anything occur to you
0: well just in the, in the narrow field of investing um, you know, most people want to hear somebody like me say buy or sell, uh, but it's it's a much more nuanced question than that. Uh, you know, you the, the person who wants advice has to think for themselves. Do I want to put a lot of emphasis on making sure I don't lose money, or do I want to make a lot of put a lot of emphasis on making sure that I take advantage of the opportunities and those two things work in opposite directions as I explained before so the the, the person has to decide for themselves uh how they feel about these things now they can uh, they can ask for advice but uh they everybody has to uh, uh, decide this on a personal basis and uh the other thing is whether you should buy or sell has a lot to do with, uh, n- number one, your current position. So I, I mentioned that, that Oak Tree became more aggressive because we had been very defensive. If you have been aggressive until now, that doesn't mean you should necessarily become even more aggressive. So, you know, what's, what ter- becoming increasing aggressiveness for us may not be right for everybody. And then the other thing is, is, uh, the investor has to ask themselves and be tough on themselves to spec out what their time frame is because you know if you say to me how how are we going to look in 5 years i think in 5 years we're going to be okay and so you know if you if you said to me i'm going to put on a position today and i'm not going to look at it for 5 years i'd say okay well then you you should have a pretty normal non-defensive investment posture if you're going to look every day and if you're going to get upset if the market goes down then you might want to have a little more defensiveness than normal so again the the same answer is not right for everybody because it depends on their ability to uh, take a long-term view rather than short and their ability to live with the agita of uh short-term ups and downs
1: well thank you very much howard uh People can find you on Twitter at Howard Marks book. Uh, certainly I'll link to your writing to your book and everything else in the show notes, including any of the memos and references that we made in uh, this conversation. Is there anything else you would like to add or anything else you would like to suggest that people uh, take a look at?
0: No. Uh, you know, Tim's good to link to all the memos. There's uh, 30 years worth in the archive at oaktreecapital.com, uh, it's free. Uh, so you can, uh, the price is right and, and you can look at <laughs> what I was, what I was thinking at various points in time in the last 30 years. Uh, I, I want to thank you, Tim, for inquiring about these things and asking such good questions. Uh, these are difficult topics. They're even difficult to frame the questions. Uh, and I want to apologize for the length of my answers, but uh, there are never easy answers and that's especially true today so thank you for having me with you
1: oh my pleasure howard and to everybody listening as always everything will be in the show notes tim.blog forward slash podcast and until next time thanks for tuning in The coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Now more than ever, businesses are grappling with incredibly challenging times. A lot of things in life and business are changing, and we're all adapting to new priorities. While it does take time to adjust, LinkedIn believes that it's also possible to find and create opportunities in times of turbulence, in times of change. Whether you're looking to hire now for a critical role or thinking about needs that you might have in the future, LinkedIn Jobs can help. LinkedIn is an active community with more than 675 million members worldwide. LinkedIn screens candidates for the hard and soft skills you're looking for while putting your job in front of candidates looking for job opportunities that match exactly what you have to offer. With LinkedIn, you can hire the right person quickly when you need them. And if you need to hire for healthcare or essential services, you can post your jobs for free right now. When it's time to find and hire that right person, LinkedIn is here to help. Just visit linkedin.com slash Tim. Again, that's linkedin.com slash Tim to post a job now. Terms and conditions apply.